Welcome to the Antioch Podcast. We're a justice-minded Christian church in beautiful Bend, Oregon, seeking and celebrating the reconciliation of all things. May the word of Christ dwell in you fully and give you peace. The scripture reading today is from the book of Psalms, chapter 112. Praise the Lord. Blessed are those who fear the Lord, who find great delight in his commands. Their children will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in their houses, and their righteousness endures forever. Even in darkness, light dawns for the upright, for those who are gracious and compassionate and righteous. Good will come to those who are generous and lend freely, who conduct their affairs with justice. Surely the righteous will never be shaken. They will be remembered forever. They will have no fear of bad news. Their hearts are steadfast, trusting in the Lord. Their hearts are secure. They will have no fear. In the end, they will look in triumph on their foes. They have freely scattered their gifts to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. Their horn will be lifted high in honor. The wicked will see and be vexed. They will gnash their teeth and waste away. The longings of the wicked will come to nothing. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Morning, church. My name is Sean, one of our pastors on the team here, and today is the fifth Sunday after Epiphany. After this week, we'll have one more kind of typical Epiphany Sunday, then we will celebrate Transfiguration Sunday, and then we will be getting into Lent. As you heard from Pete a few moments ago, we'll gather together for Ash Wednesday as we begin the journey to the cross on Good Friday and the resurrection on Easter Sunday. But as we continue on in Epiphany today, we are looking at our psalm, our text today, with this kind of critical lens in mind. What does today's psalm illuminate about the life of faith? What does it reveal about Jesus? What is the aha moment that is present in our text that speaks to our understanding of God and who he is today? And as we do that, I want to give, uh, do a little thought exercise as we do that. And I want you to think about things that on the surface look or sound or seem really easy but they're more complicated than they seem. Maybe, maybe recently you saw an Instagram ad or an infomercial for a diet supplement, right? All you have to do is take this one pill a day and you will look like this beautiful person, you know, right? This is, this is all you have to do. It's just as easy as that. You will lose 50 pounds. Look, we have these before and after photos. Definitely not actors. Definitely not photoshopped, right? <laughs> You know, all you have to do is take this one pill and you will have, you know, the body that you want. Or maybe you saw a, a workout device. You know, this is the new hit thing. At 10 minutes a day, you will have a six pack like this, you know. Uh, you can look like this just in 10 minutes a day. It's just that easy. The other day I was uh, up at Mount Bachelor. We were taking the lift up to the summit and we saw someone coming down from the summit on the Beverly Hills run. You know this one? You know, all the way at the top. And they were just using one ski by choice. 
We'd seen them before in the train park on one ski. They were skiing from the summit on one ski, just like carving it up, making it look super. I'm trying not to die coming down from the summit. And they're just like carving it up, one ski all the way coming down. Maybe you've tried to figure out something technological recently, right? Uh, you couldn't do it. Maybe your kid helped you, your spouse helped you. Uh, here at Antioch, we have Kip for those things. Um, <laughs> Things just don't seem to work. Kip walks in, it's like beep, bop, boop, everything is working just fine. He just makes this super complicated technology look super simple. Has this depth of knowledge, and you and I know, it's way more complicated than it seems. Well, today's passage for me is one of those times too. It seems too simple to be true. That things are more complicated than the way that things are described in our text. That that's not the way in which the world actually works. Thank you to Melanie for reading our text for this morning. But even if you look at verse 1, you may have noticed this right away. Blessed are those who fear the Lord, who find great delight in his commands. Pretty simple formula right there. That is all you have to do. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. Uh, that's the sermon for today, right? Just, just keep his commands and you will be blessed, right? The text goes on to say what happens if you do this super simple thing of finding great delight in God's commands. You'll have lots of children. You'll be rich. You will not be shaken. You'll look in triumph over your enemies. That's personally appealing to me. Uh, and uh, your horn will be lifted. Something I think we can all agree we're hoping for, right? So when I read a passage like this, I have two feelings that come to mind. And the first one is doubt of the simplicity, right? It's more complicated than that. It's not as black and white as that. And the second feeling I get is I get a little uncomfortable. So first, in the black and whiteness of this passage, why doesn't it feel that way in my own life? Why have I not experienced it like this? Is this how the world really works? And then in terms of that uncomfortable feeling that I get, this sounds a lot like the prosperity gospel to me, right? That you will receive financial and physical blessings as a direct result of your faith or of keeping God's commands. We'll talk more in depth about this uh, false ideology and theology in a moment. But again, at first glance, this, pass this passage feels problematic and not necessarily true to the human experience. So let's try and figure it out together, okay? As any, with any passage that we're going to dive into, we want to look at both the context and the content. And the context of this passage is vital to give us a more full and complete picture of what is going on here. So there are three important things uh, that we need to know before we can fully understand it. And first, as we've discussed before, we have to understand what type of psalm we are reading or listening uh, to help place us in that proper context. We have psalms of ascent. We have psalms of lament, right? We've talked about all of these thus far. Well, today's psalm is a wisdom psalm. There aren't a ton of psalms classified like this, but wisdom psalms are associated with the wisdom tradition that is present in books like Ecclesiastes or uh, in Job or maybe most famously the book of Proverbs. And if you've read any of these books in our Old Testament canon, you know uh, they read differently than when we read the Gospels. They read differently than when we read an epistle or a letter. These things that we might be more familiar with. Uh, one theologian says that, that wisdom psalms are meditations on the good life. They're not 
formulas to be followed. Like, like the book of Proverbs, they are ideas for wise living. They don't promise immediate results. They don't have a money back guarantee. The, the ideas that come from wisdom literature say, in most cases, if you make such and such decision or live in such and such way, you can generally expect generally good things to happen. Okay? That's, that is what wisdom literature tells us. And, and more specifically, these, these wisdom solves, they, they project a world in which those who obey God are happy and those who choose to disobey are miserable. Again, it's a fairly simplistic trope or duality that is present. They pit the wise against the foolish, the righteous against the wicked, as we'll see in our passage today. So we all say we have to read our passage with that lens in mind. It's not the same as a gospel passage. This is generally good things that generally result in these results. So second important piece of context in this psalm is that it was actually written as an acrostic poem. Uh, maybe you remember this from school. You know, it's when the first letter of each line spells out a particular word. Uh, maybe you use this tactic for uh, middle school crush and Valentine's Day, you know? <laughs> like, J is for joyful, U is for unbelievable, L is for lovely, I is for incredible, and A is for amazing. My wife, Julia, right? Oh, my gosh. It's not in my notes. I just did that right now. Happy Valentine's Day, right? Um, <laughs> I don't have to get you a card now, okay. Um, so today's psalm is an acrostic of the Hebrew alphabet. Our translations make this impossible to see, but each line after that opening hallelujah begins with the subsequent letter from the Hebrew alphabet. So if you were to rewrite it to make it more obvious and stick close to the original language, it might look something like this. Anyone who fears the Lord is blessed because they delight in God's commandments. Children of theirs will be mighty in the land. Descendants of the upright will be blessed. We can't miss that, right? A, B, C, D. It would be the same thing for folks hearing or reading this psalm originally. They couldn't miss it. And so the question is, why do this, right? Well, philosophically, this emphasizes completeness. It's the unity and full picture of God. We often hear God described as the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega. Well, here in Hebrew, we see God as the aleph and the tau and everything in between. I also think that this format is working to break down the sacred and the secular because this psalm isn't just about your spiritual life. It's A to Z. It's about everything that you do and everything that you are at home, at work, in your relationships with your finances. This covers everything. Practically, this was also used as an aid in memorization. This is my secret for taking tests, okay? This is a free tip for all you students. You can get an A on any test if you just make a, like, acrostic or mnemonic device. You don't learn anything, but you can get an A if you do it. Um, <laughs> Same thing with this psalm. It makes it so much easier to remember it. They weren't walking around with copies of their own Bibles or copies of these passages. They needed to remember it because we see that both that the acrostic nature of this psalm and the poetry itself remind us that the psalms are not simply to be read over quickly, but are to be committed to our very memory and being that the words form a part of our own consciousness in our way of entering into the world, that these words would be written on our hearts and minds, and as we are faced with daily decisions, knowing this would change how we live. 
And so the third important piece of context about this psalm is that it is intricately tied to the psalm that immediately precedes it, Psalm 111. Uh, Psalm 111 is an acrostic poem as well. These two psalms, they go together. Psalm 111 describes the nature of God. It focuses on God's power and goodness in providing for those who follow him. It gives this top-down perspective. So we see here in Psalm 112, it describes the nature of a God-fearer. It's a bottom-up perspective describing what the life of someone who fears the Lord looks like and might result in. When you pair the two psalms together, you have a portrait of divinity and humanity. You cannot understand one without the other. So when it comes to that uncomfortable feeling we get about this psalm, sounding a bit like the prosperity gospel, we know that because it is wisdom literature, it doesn't need to be read like a formula, that that formula doesn't result in what we want it to every single time, that if you do this, you will get money and happiness. Maybe you remember the famous pastor, or maybe infamous now pastor who was raising money for his second private jet. This was a prosperity gospel preacher, not ideal, right? So what we see is that we can look at this bigger perspective that the psalm is offering, that those who live faithfully tend to live more complete lives. Now we know from our experience that it doesn't mean that there will be continuous happiness and joy or that nothing will go wrong, that we will still face trials, bad things are still going to happen. You will get sick or someone close to you will. You will lose a job. That relationship will end. But what this piece of wisdom is saying is that there are still lasting joys to be found in the life of faith. So while this passage may seem to affirm the prosperity gospel at first, it quickly deconstructs it. I mean, even if we look at scripture, there are several uh, counterpoints to the presentation of this supposed formula. Uh, Our friend Job, both God and Satan agreed. Job was about as good as mere mortals could get, and yet his life, his family, his possessions, everything suffered. And not to get like totally Sunday school-y on you, uh, what about Jesus? I can't think of someone who was better at delighting in God's commands, and yet ended up without a home, ended up abandoned, ended up tortured to death. Because that's the thing, in a world where all is as God wants, the righteous always prosper. But achingly, you and I know that the world is not one where all is as God wants. We have not experienced the reconciliation of all things yet. But what the wisdom of this psalm tells us is that there is some relationship between acting justly and flourishing, but we're not quite sure what it is. So... Let's explore it in depth. Again, verse one says, praise the Lord, blessed are those who fear the Lord, who find great delights in his commands. So praise the Lord, in Hebrew, this is the word that we know, hallelujah, and serving as a call to worship in this psalm. It says to praise the Lord, and then it gives the reason for doing so, that those who fear the Lord are blessed. And as I'm sure you've heard in many, many sermons before, but this word fear does not mean uh, what we tend to associate with it or how we tend to use it. We use it as being scared or terrified, walking down a dark street at night or watching a scary movie. When it's used here in a description related to God, it's not about terror, but it's about awe. It means to revere, again, to stand in awe, to honor or to respect someone. It's a recognition of one's own smallness in the face of the, of the divine. 
Again, the other day on Bachelor, when you look out from the summit, you, you see the sisters, you see Broken Top, you see all these peaks, you see these lakes. And in that moment, when I did that, I felt so small. A little terrified with how high I was, but so small and, small and in awe of the beauty of creation. Now, in that moment, I didn't turn and say I had fear, but that's what was going on. I was in awe. And in that space, this word that we translate as fear, it, it, we, it means to have obedience to the divine will because of this sense of reverence and honor. So it's the faithful, when they delight in the commandments, they do it not out of terror, not because they're scared, but instead a response of awesome, awesome gratitude. And even the word that we use here for blessed can be tough for us to grasp. Uh, you know, in our translation that we use, the NIV, it's there on there is blessed. Uh, in the NRSV, one that uh, a lot of nerds use is called uh, happy. Uh, but even that doesn't feel like it gets the full picture with how flippantly we use the word happy now. Maybe the best way to understand it is content. To me, this emphasizes that it's not a transient mood and, and not so kind of Christian-y as hashtag blessed to not really mean anything, but content means to be in a state of peaceful happiness, to live in God's goodness because of God's steadfast love. That contentment in the Bible has to do with walking the prescribed path, not wavering off it and being satisfied because you know that you are walking the path that God has set out for you. So in just one verse of this psalm, we get glimpses of the focus of the faithful life, to live in awe of God. And because of that, out of gratitude to keep his commandments, and this idea was encapsulated by Jesus as he simplified the law into the two greatest commandments, to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. And so what are the things that often come to those who choose to live this way? Well, their children will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in their houses and their righteousness endures forever. So we see the things that come from living this way actually mirror what God had promised to Abraham. Descendants, land, house, and blessing. And what God is saying here is that even though Israel and all of humanity has failed to keep their end of the bargain of being faithful to God, he cannot help but be faithful back to us. And in this next middle chunk of the psalm, there is a shift. If the first section focused on the blessings that often come to those that seek to live a faithful life, this section portrays the blessing that these faithful people extend to others. Verse four tells us that they are gracious and, and compassionate. That Verse five tells us that these types of people are generous. They lend freely. They conduct all of their affairs with justice. That whatever blessings they may have received from God, they freely pass them on to others. The positive things that have happened to them aren't to be stored up for them or their family only. They are to be shared without interest. And in this way, those who are in awe of the Lord shine like a light in the darkness. Says that there will still be darkness present. The world will still be a dark place, but those who are content in the Lord light up the world for everyone else. That the way they live, marked by grace and compassion, generosity and justice, testifies to the true light of the world in Jesus. 
The text continues, surely the righteous will never be shaken. They will be remembered forever. They will have no fear of bad news. Their hearts are steadfast, trusting in the Lord. Their hearts are secure. They will have no fear. In the end, they will look in triumph on their foes. They have freely scattered their gifts to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. Their horn will be lifted high in honor. Have you ever been in an emergency situation? Maybe you were injured or or someone you were with was injured and needed help. Well, some of you uh, may remember a few months back, I had an unfortunate uh, chopping vegetables accident, and uh, I chopped off part of my finger. And uh, I was doing it. I saw it happen. I saw what seemed like every ounce of blood in my body coming out of my finger, I'm pretty sure. And uh, I yelled a word I probably shouldn't have. And then I did the smartest thing that I could do in that moment, which is I yelled for Julia to help me. And she came running into the kitchen and she knew exactly what to do. She was calm, she was composed. She told me to lay down because I have a bit of a fainting problem when I see blood, okay? She did all of these things and she was a calming presence in a moment where I was totally freaking out. I was worried about my golf game, really. And uh, have you seen someone do something similar? You know, in a chaotic situation, their calming presence stands out and makes all the difference. For me, I, I see the same thing in certain people in the way in which they enter the world at all times. There's this overwhelming sense of calm, of trust, of being a non-anxious presence. And for many of these folks, it's tied to this right here, a confidence in the presence of God at all times. They know that bad things will happen, scary things will happen, but still their way of being in the world is one of peace. That when bad things happen, they know where their shelter is in the storm that part of the flourishing and prospering that comes from a life of faithfully seeking after God is entering the world differently. In this way of being, it stands in stark contrast to the wicked. Verse 10 tells us that the wicked will see and be vexed. They will gnash their teeth and waste away. The longings of the wicked will come to nothing. So in our wisdom literature format, we got the contrast here between the righteous and the wicked. Those following the Lord are content, the wicked are angry. The the righteous are generous in helping others, while the wicked cannot even be happy when others prosper. They get mad at just seeing other people happy. Verse 6 tells us that those who fear the Lord will be remembered forever, while we see here that the, the wicked are evanescent and they are fleeting, they will waste away. Those who seek after God will experience the bountiful yield of God while the wicked will be left empty-handed. While the wicked gnash at generosity, the just are remembered by all with gratitude. And so, how do we put this all together, right? Is, is, is it really that simple, simple is the formula to be followed? Will I be guaranteed these things that I want, like children and family and a house and wealth and blessings if I just follow God's commands. If we know it's not the prosperity gospel and I won't be getting my second jet, uh, it still even feels a bit like works righteousness too. Again, we're examining the psalm from our lectionary options today, but the gospel reading comes from Matthew 5. 
in the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes. And we might see our psalm today as almost an extension of the Beatitudes. Jesus' words there, when he describes those who are blessed or happy or content, even when it might not feel that way to them. Jesus offers this, this formula of blessings that doesn't always seem to produce the results that we want or expect. So our Psalm 112 version of the Beatitudes might sound something like this. Blessed are those who fear the Lord, who delight in his commandments. Content are those who are gracious, merciful, and righteous, who deal generously and lend with no expectation of return. That those who conduct all those their affairs with justice and give to the poor, truly I tell you, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so we see the possibility of this psalm illumined in Jesus. He had no physical descendants, he had no material wealth, and yet has more spiritual descendants and distributes more gifts more generously than anyone else. He inaugurated the year of Jubilee in his ministry and in the church and rose from the dead to bring light to the darkness. His righteousness is unending and he brings a whole different kind of kingdom and economy. He replaces an economy of power with an economy of service. We see in this psalm a glimpse into Jesus' own generosity, his own sense of contentment, which he showers on anyone and everyone. Because that's the thing with this passage is that none of this can happen without Jesus. We can't do any of these things on our own. Best as we try, we fail at keeping God's commands. We fail at being in awe of God and we take him for granted. We lack grace, compassion, and empathy. We lend to make a good return and we hoard what we have. We don't conduct all of our affairs with justice. But that's part of why Psalm 111 comes before Psalm 112. In Psalm 111, we, we see a mirroring of language between these two things. It's focused on the righteousness of God and the deeds of the Lord. And as we've seen in our psalm, the focus is on the deeds of those who fear the Lord. Could it be that those who are in awe of God and seeking to follow him are both expected and empowered to act and to live like him? That because of God and his righteousness, we can be righteous too. It is only because our Lord is already gracious and already merciful and already just that we are capable of being gracious and merciful and just. Shauna Hannon is a pastor and seminary professor, and, and she puts it like this. She says, our lives and our futures are shaped by the way we mirror the deeds of our Lord. Our generous dealings and just affairs, our free distribution and generosity toward the poor mirror the deeds of our Lord. Our actions are described in terms of our Lord's actions. Our Lord's actions shape and guide our actions. We see that these two psalms together, they are a statement of what faith is all about. Who God is and what humans must do in response to that. When these psalms are intertwined with rich language and metaphor, the content person of Psalm 112 partners with the God of Psalm 111 working together to bring about the reconciliation of all things. We see that it's not that we have to do these things to be righteous or to get these blessings, but it's because we are already justified that we then partner with God in these things. 
We want to be known for these things. It's not a formula to get what we want, but because we already have everything that we need in Jesus, we can live differently than the world. So for us today, what might that look like for you? Have you been trying to do the right deeds of Psalm 112, disconnected from the God of Psalm 111? As best as you or I might try to be generous, gracious, compassionate, share gifts with the poor, and conduct all our affairs with justice, we tend to fall short if we are untethered from the vine. If we don't realize that the source of all of these good gifts is from God. So what might you need to do today to reconnect to the vine and to see these actions as an overflow of the relationship that you already have with God versus what you need to do to be with him? Or maybe you are on the opposite end of the spectrum, that maybe you've been so focused on righteousness as a spiritual exercise and become so heavenly-minded that you are no earthly good. Have you lost sight of being gracious towards others no matter what they believe or how they live or who they voted for or what stickers they have on their car? Have you forgotten the poor and lived without empathy and only focused on them as a political problem? Have you been so focused on lending with interest, and that does not have to be only with money, that no one would consider you generous? Do people walk away from uh, business dealings or meetings with you and say, man, I hate working with that guy or that gal or whatever? If any of these might hit home, I encourage you to see how God describes those who are blessed of those who are in awe of him, that those who are in Christ Jesus participate in his work of love and justice in the world. That when Jesus calls us to be both salt and light, we are to stand out. We are to take action. We are to be generous, gracious, and compassionate in every area of our lives. Not just with spiritual things, but in our work, in our relationships, in our consumption, in our treatment of the planet, every single area of our lives is to be different because of that. And so summarizing up this passage, there's a pastor in Washington State named Barbara Blaisdell, and she says this. She says, to live in awe of God is to live under the wonder and trembling awesomeness of the creator of the Milky Way and the Aurora Borealis. The God who made the humpback whale and is furious at the possibility that humankind may cause its extinction. Happier are those who understand the awesomeness of the God who knows the name of every single child on this earth and is fighting for health care for each one who does not have health care and for peace for each one who must go to bed in a war zone and is fighting for justice for each child who goes to bed hungry while others of us overconsume. So for me, Psalm 112 isn't a list of things that we have to do. It's not a formula to get what we want, but it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity to partner with the God of reconciliation and restoration. A God who says, you don't have to do all of these things in order to earn my love or in order to be righteous, but instead, because you love me, let's do these things together. Let's change the world with grace. Let's change the world with compassion. Let's change the world with justice. Yes, there will still be darkness. Yes, it will still be messy. But as we do these things together, we will show the world that there is a hope in Jesus and a way of being in the world that Jesus invites all of us into. And this way of being is the way of love. So, 
Antioch family, may we be a people who mirror and emulate the love of God in every area of our lives, and in so doing, show the world the goodness of the God who loves us. Amen.